This is the Saturate Podcast. Saturate is committed to seeing a gospel movement happen in North America and beyond, in which every man, woman, and child have a daily encounter with Jesus in word and deed. This podcast is an ongoing conversation with disciples and leaders growing in the gospel and growing and living the implications of the gospel in community and on mission. Welcome to the Saturate Podcast. My name is Duke Brevard. I'm the Executive Director of Soma Family of Churches in Saturate. I'm joined uh, by my co-host, Jeff Vanderstelt, a visionary leader of Saturate. And then we have a guest this, this week, which is exciting. Uh, we've got Will Plitt from Christ Together with us to talk about uh, really how churches can own the lostness of their city together. Uh, that's really the topic. So uh, welcome, Jeff. Will? Hello. Good to be with you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, well, as as our guest, well, I'd love to just uh, learn a little bit about you for our audience. Maybe tell us uh, tell us about you, your family, uh, your ministry, and then even your role with with Christ together. Yeah, great. Thanks so much um, for the opportunity to join you today, and uh, man, just for for all the great work um, that you guys are doing. Um, yeah, a little bit of a little bit of context about myself. I, I live in Winston Salem, North Carolina, so kind of a southern mid Atlantic city that would be categorized um, as being in the Bible Belt. Um, but when you look at the spiritual landscape of our city, we are roughly right now about 74% of our population is not connected to a local church. So mm-hmm. we're seeing a, an incredible shift, even moving from kind of a pre-Christian context to a post-Christian context. Um, so I have the privilege of, of serving here and um, live here with my wife. We have three grown children. So I entered into basically full-time ministry. I came out of the small business world in the late 90s, where I've served as a church planter and pastor. And about four years ago, I stepped into this role uh, to serve as executive director for Christ Together. Uh, As an entity, Christ Together is roughly about eight years old. There's some older iterations of this that go back uh, beyond that. And kind of the unique thing about Christ Together, what we would say is our our lane uh, and our contribution, so to speak, is that we are an envisioning and convening uh, the church for the gospel saturation of North America. That would be kind of the, the unique lane that we would say. And what that really means as you unpack it is that Christ Together brings uh, churches, networks, and denominations in a city together for a shared outcome, uh, which we call gospel saturation. And the way we define that is just simply the church owning the lostness of their geography to ensure that every man, woman, and child has repeated opportunities to see, hear, and respond to the good news. So really from inception, we, we've grown. We've got a presence in 91 cities now that are committed to the vision across North America. Wow. The thing that makes it really fun for me is I've got a great team uh, I get to work with to help advance this vision across North America. And um, I would say lastly that you know, the thing I love about what you guys are doing is that you're practitioners. And, and so – for me, it starts in our local church, and then it starts in our own city. So I also serve on the leadership team for Christ Together Triad, where we're working locally to advance the vision of uniting the church to um, give repeated access and opportunity to the gospel. So, um, yeah, a little bit of context there. Yeah, that's great. Now, Jeff, you and I have had conversations over the even the last probably year uh, feeling like there's an uptick, even on maybe what the Spirit's doing to really bring about unity in the church. Uh, so it's it's cool to hear Christ Together has been doing this eight years. We've had a hub vision. Jeff, you've had a hub vision for 
10 years, 10 plus years for similar kinds of things. But maybe even speak, Jeff, just a moment about what you're seeing all over the place in terms of uh, different organizations, different churches, different Christians who are sensing a call towards greater unity and partnership in the gospel. Yeah, it does seem like the spirit is is whispering, you know, and moving and fanning uh, into flame this reality that Jesus prayed for in John 17. And so I'm seeing it increasingly in a lot of, especially, and this is, you know, my own purview, but especially in urban centers that are experiencing a significant secularization and a departure from the church being a significant part of the context. And so what you're, what at least I'm seeing is where churches are going, Hey, you know what? We don't have the privileged center in the square. We we're seeing people walking away from the church. We've, we've experienced a lot of uh, difficulty and pain. We've we're incredibly humbled right now, recognizing our need. We can't do this alone. We need help. We need each other. We need to, to stop thinking we're building our thing and we're participating in Jesus building his thing. And so I'm, I'm really encouraged as I'm seeing that increasingly take place in many key cities. And then not just the church leaders doing that, but organizations like Christ Together, City to City, in Canada, C to C, and we could keep going. There's just so many different expressions of exponentials doing this. And their their whole theme this year is together and collaboration for the Great Commission and Great Commandment. And so you're just like, okay, something's going on that the Spirit is bringing about that we're really just stepping into and getting to enjoy the, the fruits of what Jesus is doing. And so I'm, I'm really encouraged. I've been always encouraged by every interaction I've had with Will and the leadership at Christ Together, because we, we, it's almost like we complete each other's sentences. And when you see that, it's like, okay, this isn't our thing. Clearly, God's up to something. So very encouraged right now. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I want to start the podcast by really hearing you guys make the biblical case for unity, uh, because I don't think this is is actually self-evident to all Christians everywhere. In fact, I had a really sobering experience last year at an offsite. And, and this is to no shame to anybody on our team, but we had a, one of our team members was had read Francis Chan's book, Letters to the Churches, and he makes a, a real strong you know call for unity of churches working together. And this, this employee said, hey, this is really the first time I've ever heard anybody make the case biblically. I just I had assumed it was a good thing and they were not pushing back. They just hadn't seen anybody show their work, so to speak, you know, to use a math illustration. It was like I, I got to the answer and I was fine with the answer and I was fine to go and work on the answer. I just had never seen anybody show me from the scriptures why this was actually a, 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 an ontological uh, reality or a necessity or something that is Christ's heart. And so I'd love to hear from both of you, Will and Jeff. If you've got somebody who's skeptical, who's saying, hey, I, I believe unity is more of a local church issue under the leadership of elders. I'm supposed to be unified that way, but I just don't see why I would, would ever be unified maybe with the church down the street. Maybe I don't agree with every single thing on their doctrinal statement, or maybe it's just too much work. Maybe help us with the biblical case. Like uh, maybe we'll start with you, Will, as, as you're sharing with people that have that question or that pushback, where do you go in the scripture to, to make the case for uh, not just a pragmatic case of hey you know let's let's do this maybe it'll be fruitful but no no the scriptures actually tell us that the church is one and that and that that's a that's a that's a conviction that's a that's a commitment of the scripture yeah I, I love where you're starting with that Duke like let's let's start with the biblical conviction and you know 
when I hear pastors talk about that, first of all, I, I, I understand and relate to them because I wish I could tell you that I always thought like this, um, you know, being trained and coached as a church planter along the way, like this was just not a part of our, of our, our missiology and our ecclesiology. And I remember planting my first church and thinking arrogantly that the way to reach my city was through my church, which is a very reactionary way to plant. And, you know, it's, it's basically saying that we don't need anybody else. And so years back, there's a, a missiologist who uh, asked a couple of questions of some of the, the core leaders at, at, at Christ together. And the, the question is, is this, has God called you to lead a church or has he called you to reach a city? Hmm. And man, we know what the right answer to that is, but the implications of how you answer that are radically different. And so, you know, really going back and, and spending significant time in the scripture, I, I believe, you know, from Genesis to Revelation, it, it paints such a beautiful picture of embracing a theology of oneness. So, you know, in Genesis, the two become one. You see God w- working his redemptive mission through one nation, Israel, and you get into the New Testament and all the language of one, of one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one body, many parts. Uh, you look at Paul's writing uh, of the epistles to the church of Galatia, Corinth, Ephesus, etc. You know, you get to Revelation, you know, when Jesus is addressing uh, the churches in Revelation to the church of Ephesus, to the church of Philadelphia. But where I really was, was challenged and convicted, and Jeff already alluded to this, is really the, the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17. And when you mm-hmm. look at verses, particularly 20 through 23. And those are the ones that just washed over me like a big wave where Jesus is talking in verse 21, that, that they may all be one, just as you father in me and I in you, that they also may be one or be in us so that the world might believe that you have sent me. And, and when I really spent time thinking through it, meditating through and wrestling through that, what Jesus is really saying there is that it, it becomes a, a missing apologetic to a lost world. Like do the lost people of my city know that Jesus has been sent by God. He's the son of God divine by the way that the church is united. Hmm. And for us it, it Christ together, it really became the missing apologetic. And so if this indeed is true, uh, then I have to begin to view other churches as companions and co-laborers instead of competitors. And it was a radical paradigm shift in, in my life years back to, to really wrestle through that. And to be honest, my flesh still wrestles through that <laughs> at times because this is so not natural for us in, in the Western church world. No, absolutely. And I was a church planner as well, Will, and had the same arrogance, you know, that thought our church is going to be the thing that actually tips the scale, changes the city. And I I wonder if that's not the default of most church planters, um, you know, that we all kind of think in those terms. That was, that was really helpful. Jeff, wh- how, how do you go after that question when you get pushback on unifying across church lines, domination lines? Uh, where do you go? Maybe you go to some of the same places. What would you affirm and, and maybe even uh, add to, to some of what Will said around the one church theology? Yeah, I think Will's done a really good job of, first of all, expressing a biblical theology of oneness. Uh, so I love how he did that. And that when when anyone was addressing the church, they addressed the church in the city in all the letters. We see that. 
Uh, and so he, he did a great job of stating that as well. He doesn't actually talk about First Baptist, you know, or First Methodist or whatever. Of course, we know they didn't exist then, but but regard, none, nonetheless, they did meet in homes. And so he could have only written to home churches. He does mention them at times, but the majority of the letters are to the church in a particular city. And then, and then I think, um, you know, in Ephesians, when we look at the gifts, uh, you know, God's given these people, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, to the church. And Paul is not referring to your local church. He's, he's referring to the, the church in a city. And he says even they've been given to the church in the city for the building up of the saints uh, to help everyone grow up into maturity into Christ, who's the head. And what, what Paul is fundamentally saying is the church as a whole in Ephesus, let's just use that example, will not get healthy and mature unless the church across the board, all of them recognize that God's given gifts to the church, big C church, which might, they might dwell in different meeting spaces, but they're given to the church in that city until they all see that their job is to help the whole church grow up in maturity. Every church will suffer in some way or another. So there's not just the biblical theological, the expression of the letters being written, but pragmatically, Paul is fundamentally saying you won't actually grow up in maturity until you realize the gifts have been given to the church in a city for the sake of building up the whole church in that city. So there's a even a not just the missiological, which I also would fully agree with, and I want to come back to that, but there's also the, the practical reality that the church is unhealthy unless it's working together as one church in one city, recognizing God's given all the gifts they need, but they aren't all resident in one local church. They're actually resident in the city. And so we're we're missing out on the access to the gifts God's given the city for the sake of that church in that city growing up in maturity when we aren't actually working together as one. Now, going to the, the John 17 passage, it's interesting. Jesus says in verse 22, the glory that you've given me, I've given to them, uh, that they may be one even as we are one. And that word glory is, the, is the, a word for what represents the true nature of or the weightiness of, the full reality of. That's what that word glory means. And so what's interesting is Jesus is, and he said it earlier, you know, Father, you've given me glory, I've glorified you. Uh, Other places he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Uh, What Jesus is saying there is he's saying, the true nature of God has been revealed in me and in how I've interacted with the disciples. Now you've given it, you're giving it to them so that now the world will see through their unity, as Will just stated, the true nature of God. So what, what's going on here is it's missiological in the sense that no one will really understand the true nature of God the Father sending God the Son uh, and then the Spirit to empower the church as one God if it isn't revealed in how we relate to one another. So in other words, if we aren't operating as one church in a city, we are actually not able to display the true nature, the glory of God faithfully. So we're actually telling a lie about God to our city by our lack of unity. And therefore the very message we preach is being undermined by the activities we engage in that are divisive. And that's why Paul is clear in Ephesians, God's destroyed the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. And that's not just meant to be between two ethnic groups. It's meant to be that there is no reason whatsoever for there to be any ounce of division between any of us, because it will undermine the very, very profession of our faith that we have one God, one Father, one Lord, one Spirit, one baptism, one church, one body with many gifts. Yeah. And I've even seen that. You guys probably have as well with, with not, not yet believers who would 
say, hey, I'm kind of leaning in on Jesus, but I just don't even know who's right. You know, like I'm hearing kind of competing messages and I don't know which church is right. And it seems like you guys don't agree. And what if I land in the wrong subtribe? You know, like what if I come in and it's it's not the right one, you know, because you're saying, you know, the, 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 the church down the street is, is wrong and, and you're right, you know. And so it's just, gosh, it's devastating even for evangelism, you know, or, or, or for new people coming in. Duke, to the world, we look like a business fighting for for market share. That's what it looks like. Yeah. I'm sure that you guys know and that, that I know, they, they look at the church and, and they say, aren't you guys supposed to be on the same team? You, mm-hmm. you agree with you know, as, as, as a church. So it, it sends a very fragmented message. And so I, I think that is the power of when you begin to see the church unite around what Jesus is, is praying for in John 17, it really is a supernatural conviction with lost people that, and they are attracted to that. It, it's, yeah. it's just an amazing thing to see unfold. Yeah, no, absolutely. Jeff, as you talk, yeah, you talk about marketplace, I've been guilty of this. This kind of gets back to what Will confessed as well, this idea that our church is going to be the, the one who changes this city. A lot of what we've learned about vision casting, I think, comes from marketing. And a lot of marketing is, is differentiation. You know, you emphasize how you're different and different means better. <laughs> you know, it's like we're the different than every other church in the city, which means we're better than every other church in the city, which means we're going to get the job done. And that's kind of how you cast vision. And kind of how you talk about yourself, even in subtle ways, uh, but it reinforces that division and it, and it weakens uh, the message. And it, and it well, it, it fundamentally is a different message uh, than what Christ has, has prayed for and what he's done, what he's accomplished. So, yeah, that's that's really powerful. Uh, maybe let's talk a little bit about what, you know, why, where did we lose it? You know, I mean, you go, uh, you know, these letters to the churches are writing to a city church. Uh, there have been times, certainly, obviously, Catholicism was a unified uh, approach. We could talk about that maybe a little bit, but maybe even more contemporary. Wh- where do we lose it? When, do, you know, when did this emphasis get lost in America, uh, or has it always been lost in America? I mean, how do, how do we get to a place where we're so isolated from one another? Maybe working on islands, not not really unified and partnering uh, for gospel advance in our cities. Yeah, I, I would say, and I'll unpack this, you know, what has always been true for the church, the nature and intent and purpose of the church is still true today. So what was true 2000 years ago is still true today. However, I, in the West, I think we've lost sight of that for, for several reasons. I, I think pastors largely view themselves uh, this way. I am the pastor of a church versus I am a pastor of the church in my city. Hmm. And, and so when, when you look at kind of the American culture of, of, you know, of rugged individualism and consumerism that has infiltrated our church, it goes back to what you both have shared. It, it sends the message of, well, we don't really need each other. And so when you also, I think, look at the Western church, the scorecard for how churches have been typically measuring success it's been a very metrics driven around, you know, the three B's, bodies, buildings, budgets, or, you know, nickels, noses, numbers. And coupled with the fact that the church has been on a, a fast pursuit 
uh, and focused on just give me the play to run, the strategy or the app to put on my phone. And we've been reluctant to address the unhealthy culture and, and a broken operating system that a lot of churches are, are operating on. And that's simply this. That a lot of the churches that, that we encounter are operating out of scarcity thinking. And they're mm-hmm. operating out of self-preservation. And whenever you operate out of self-preservation, you're always asking the question, what am I afraid to lose? When you look at, to, to, to kind of finish answering that, when you look at the operating system of most churches across uh, North America, they really embrace a collecting community operating system, which says the church is a place, it's a building. And, and if that is true, then we have to protect our assets. We have to, we embrace a competing culture because we have a market share, as Jeff said, that we have to make sure we preserve. And at the end of the day, it's really about building an organization. But when you look back to the New Testament church, it was a mobilizing a reaching community. And at the center was not a building, but it was the people of God, empowered by his spirit, sent on a mission or with unique gifts. And so when you embrace that kind of operating system, you actually don't protect your assets, you release them. And you now look at your city differently Mm -hmm. because if we're talking about reaching every man, woman and child, I can't compete. I have to collaborate. It moves it from a nicety to a necessity. And at the end of the day, it gets back to instead of building organizations to building disciples. Yeah. Well, as you said, the difference, I mean, you just said uh, earlier in that you, you talked about the individual scorecard of, an, of one church versus a collective scorecard of all the churches for their city. Just that shift alone, you know, as you were saying, and I was thinking it's like we've been playing tennis, like the total solo sport instead of football, you know, where multiple people are playing. And so our scorecard has been, yeah, that individualism. So if you if you said, hey, all the pastors of Winston-Salem, we're going to evaluate you guys collectively on conversion growth aggregate for the city. That's your only metric this year, you know, mm-hmm. and, and then the spiritual growth aggregate of your city. We're not going to look at any individual churches. We're not going to pay attention to that. We're just going to see, did we move the needle in this city this year or not? I mean, that already fundamentally changed everything about how churches work together and how they partner. And it would be centered around the mission that Jesus gave us, you know, to make disciples, to reach the city, not to, again, like you said, protect our assets, protect our market share. We don't want our church to go into decline. If that means another church grows, that's a loss for us, even Mm -hmm. if it were somehow a gain for the city, you know, there's all kinds of, yeah, competition. So yeah, that that scorecard piece uh, just seems like, uh, what you measure is what you work on, and we've been measuring really individualistically and almost in competitive in competition. That's that's great, super helpful. Word. Yeah, yeah. What 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 would you add in terms of how do we get here? What maybe what are some contributing factors in addition to consumerism and the competition and the wrong scorecard or individualism? What else would you say has contributed to why we we don't work together? Why we're so divided? Why well, I, I just would. Have- affirm a lot of what Will said. And then, you know, if we know our church history, we know once the Protestant Reformation happened, which I'm not unthankful for, but we did we did then learn to de- define ourselves as against or different or set apart. And then you, you know, you've got the Anabaptist movements and you, you know, you, we went in a, in a Western mentality much towards the highest, the highest good or the most uh, true reality is the individual self. And, um, and so just on a philosophical approach, when you begin to embrace that concept, 
of locality, of individualism, of uh, a sense of self apart from community, apart from a larger reality, a larger narrative, a larger body, then I think that that's just literally built into our mentality, even though we don't know we're doing it. And so if you don't address that part, then, and then all the other things can't, in some ways can't be addressed until you get back to the ontological reality of who are we? <laughs> and yeah. um, we are God's people. We are the family of God. Uh, the church is is one it is in heaven it is one we we don't see it that way but god does and so i think aligning ourselves with that reality is important and being willing to repent of our cultural idolatry which especially is rampant in the west of the radical individualization of self the sense of significance being defined over against the other um, all those things are all in the are running in the background of our minds constantly. And so we have to face that. And then I, I think what Will said too, um, when the scorecard then represents that and uh, what you already said, Duke, is like, we, how is my church differentiated against your church? Instead of saying, how is my church like your church? How is, how is our church the same? How can we embrace the reality of the oneness? Um, and so that would require a different scorecard. And, and I think, you know, the other thing is the church became an institution instead of a movement. And, and Will alluded to that a bit in terms of the mobilization reality, that we're here to send, not here to keep. And, but when, when you, whenever you institutionalize anything, you, you end its life at some point. And, and, and you can just look at this with the Methodist uh, movement with Wesley unbelievable i mean true movement if you look at what happened through the wesleyan movement and and yet at one point because the presbyterians or others that were looking in were critical about their lack of education their lack of formal training uh the wesleyan context decided well, you know we've got to we've got to create schools we've got to create seminaries we've got to create bible schools and all of a sudden you institutionalized a movement and you created uh kind of ways of saying who is and who isn't, who's qualified, who's not, who's in, who's out, who's affirmed, who's not. And so all of a sudden you just shut down the movement, you institutionalize it to the degree in which now we can measure it. And and we measured the wrong thing. <laughs> and not that education's wrong or training's wrong. It's just that uh, they lost sight of the fact that we're trying to reach all of North America. That's the goal. And how do we do that? So it shut down movement potential it limited the creativity of the of God's people, and it, it fundamentally defined over against what we're not. And so I think those are all the things that we still have to wrestle with as we think about this reality of oneness. But again, the, the ontological reality of who we are, the, the heavenly reality that we already are that, the repentance needed to go back, and then the scorecard change that's going to be required to actually celebrate the right things in the future. That's going to be the stuff we got to face. Yeah, no, that's really good, guys. Well, let's talk a little bit about proof of concept because I think for some people listening, they could say, hey, unity's great. You know, Jesus prayed for it. It seems symbolic. It seems like though maybe it would take so much work that maybe the work that it would take isn't worth the fruit that would come from it. We need to spend time on other things. So I love this, but I don't think that, I don't believe that at all. And I think you two have experienced something very, very different uh, than that. You've actually experienced the church is much better together uh, for reasons that you guys have alluded to, like the gifts being more expressed in the church and that kind of thing. But, Will, I'd love to start with you. Maybe tell us the story of Western New York and what God has done over the past 10 years as churches in that region have said, you know what, we're going to own the lostness of Western New York together. Yeah, it's, it's really quite remarkable. 
you know, which, you know, there's part of me that has to repent for being surprised for when God does what he has told us in scriptures that he desires to do. <laughs> um, you know, but it was, it's, it's an interesting story because the whole, what has happened there and is continuing to happen really started with uh, a few key questions because it, it doesn't matter where you start in, in, in asking the right questions, I think. So, you know, one of the questions that, uh, Pastor Jerry Gillis, who, who pastors actually the largest church in uh, in Buffalo called the Chapel, really started with, "What if we ask the question, what does God want? Not what does God want for my church or, or for our vision, but what what does God want?" And then the second question that followed up was, "Well, what would it look like if God had His way? What rises up out of Scripture on how you would answer those two questions?" And you know, to something Jeff said a moment ago, I really resonated with. It's, it's like we ask the wrong questions, I think, oftentimes, like questions like, tell me how your church is doing. That's a terrible question to ask because either I'm on the other end, I'm either going to lie to tell you, you know, we're doing better than we actually are. Or I've got to fake it or whatever it is. But, you know, what if we started with the question of how is your church, how is the church of your city doing in light of the state of lostness? Hmm. When you ask that question, it really level sets everything because nobody, nobody can say we're winning. So they really started with some questions, and then it started with Jerry pastoring a very influential church, inviting other pastors in his region for to a lunch where he publicly apologized for acting like they didn't need all the other churches in his city. And so it started with a place of humility, mm-hmm. a place of repentance, and just a place of personal conviction from from him that you know God had not called him to be a large large machine operator. He had called him to advance uh, the mission and to bring the kingdom near uh, through the church of a, of a city. So what happened there over a course of really about thirteen years, uh, they looked at ten years, and it was the first city that that Christ together had actually measured tangibly. Uh, the collective impact of churches working together for the shared outcome of gospel saturation. And here's just a couple of, of really amazing facts from that. You know, when they started this, Buffalo was ranked seventh on Barna's list of most post-Christian cities. Uh, it's a city of about 1.2 million, where 700,000 of them uh, identify as being Catholic. So it's there's not a lot of WWJD bracelets being worn <laughs> in, in the context up there. So when they surveyed, um, they, they looked at primarily two measurements. They wanted to know what happened to city population over 10 years, and they wanted to know what happened to church attendance over 10 years from the churches that had been collaborating for gospel saturation. This was roughly about 90 churches at the time. Um, and what they saw was this, that over a 10-year period, population had decreased in that region 0.4%. And here's the big drum roll piece. Mm-hmm. During the same 10-year time frame, the church of Western New York had increased its attendance by 28%. Wow. And when you get underneath that, they looked at roughly 90% of that growth was coming from people exiting mainline liberal denominations and from post-Catholicism. So there was very little transfer growth or sheep swapping. They have since moved to number 13 on Barna's list now. It's just an incredible picture. Now, there's a lot of, lot of things underneath that. One, one just 
short piece in closing that I would highlight is just how Church of Western New York believe that if they're going to provide more access to the good news, that they're going to have to plant churches together. So they developed uh, the Church Planting Institute, uh, which was a is a multi denominational collective of churches uh, across you know different denominations from Wesleyan Church of Christ, SBC, A two nine, Free Methodist, AG, and on, where they put money on the table every year to collaboratively plant churches together. So when you look at that 28% growth uh, that happened over 10 years, 57% of that growth came from church planting. 42% of that growth came from existing churches, which was really, really amazing. And then the other thing that informed how they planted churches was they they made the willful decision to, to say, hey, we're going to plant with a saturation planting mindset. So when they started, they wanted to, they started with planting. We want to see one church for every 125,000 people. And so they worked through that and they're now working on planting one church for every 25,000 people that have a, in these churches will have a city rate, a city reaching operating system. And their goal will be over time to get one church for every 1,000 people. So you can kind of see how gospel saturation has, has infiltrated even their strategic initiatives like church planting over the years. Yeah, and that's awesome. And so they, with that 125,000 to start, they did they map the city and decide where those blocks would be, and then prioritize sort of the most underreached of those segments. Or how, how do they how do they approach that? Yeah, they did. They they had a very good grasp of uh, where there was a gospel presence and gospel absence, and where there was a need for churches. And and the thing, when you look at the types of churches they're planting, it's not model driven and it's a very multi-ethnic. They they're planting refugee churches, you know, churches in ring one of the city. So it's a very, they're, they're going to where the need of the harvest is, which I really love the focus. It's a very harvest focused approach. Whereas I know Jeff and I have been involved with church planting a lot over the years. A lot of times you can, plant a lot of churches that actually are not about reaching the harvest. No, absolutely. And, and how many different denominations or groups were, were collaborating in, in that effort? Uh, with the CPI, they have eight churches. I, I believe this is still true that serve kind of on their leadership council from eight different denominations. And they put roughly from those, those churches about $250,000 or so on the table every year to go toward funding church planting. And and the interesting thing is when you ask the planters that have gone through that, hey, who planted you? Most pastors will always, or planters will always say, well, my denomination or my network planted. The planters there will say the Church of Western New York planted me. Hmm. It's awesome. Yeah. Huge pair. And they did. Yeah. Both in in, uh, effort, emphasis, finances, everything, uh, which is just profound. And so in some ways unprecedented, at least in my experience uh, of church planning. Uh, that's that's just amazing. Jeff, I know uh, Saturate the Sound is another expression in Seattle uh, where churches are working significantly and, and increasingly year over year, more and more uh, partnership is happening in, in city reaching and, t- and owning the city and reaching the city. But may- yeah, maybe tell us a little bit about that. Uh, maybe things that are similar to, to Western New York, maybe some things that are different, but 
Uh, what, what is God doing in Seattle to unify the churches? Yeah, well, it does go back to like really the late 80s, early 90s of a prayer movement that was started from a, a leader down in kind of the Oregon area. Uh, they called them prayer summits. And so that, that definitely preceded all that I'm going to talk about. And then a, a significant church leadership failures successively over a period of like 10 years continually happening in this region to the point at which I think it humbled the leadership realizing we need each other. And so all that precedes what I, what then I got to be a part of, which was just starting to call pastors to this vision saying, what would it look like if we did it together? Realizing the spirit had been birthing it in the hearts of many, many leaders to the point at which we have about a hundred churches committed to a unified collaborative work of gospel saturation of the greater Puget Sound. Uh, We are presently distributed into 10 regional cohorts uh, with the goal of both learning to be better disciple makers, but also partnering together for collaborative work in each one of those 10 regions in the, in the Puget Sound. And each one of those uh, cohorts is producing different effects. So just was on a significant meeting yesterday where uh, four or five churches in the Seattle area in their cohort have said, now let's actually share a leadership development pipeline that we will build together commit together and start to call people to really give their lives for the sake of Seattle. And it's not just for pastors. This is for your everyday person. And they're designing Mm -hmm. it to actually start to, because we're in this area, we're lacking the kind of Urbana or like even youth ministry call of like, Hey, God's calling you to ministry. Are you going to make a call to to join him in that? We don't have anything like that in this region. And so they're just saying, why don't we just as the church in Seattle start to make it normative that we call everybody to give at least a six month to a year period of development to their their own discipleship and then consider as God calling them to take more seriously leadership in the city of Seattle for the sake of gospel saturation. So they're just building that in Kent. Churches responding to COVID because they were already partnered together in these cohorts have now fed tens of thousands of people that were without food during the loss of jobs within in the last several months to the point at which the mayor now uh, is partnering significantly with the church and some significant investors are willing to give money to the churches in Kent to help them serve the city of Kent as they really bless the city as the church. And so you've got this unified church and they're calling themselves, we love Kent. Um, And it's just, I mean, I've I've just seen video after video after video of the demonstration of the kingdom breaking in. And then you've got in Tacoma, uh, five or six churches now saying, let's plant churches together, similar to what Will just described. That's starting to come together. Where I'm at, we've been working for a while, saying, let's take ownership not only of the lostness, but let's adopt the schools in the east side of Seattle so that every single school has a church that's committed to uh, serving that school and hopefully seeing the, the the doors of the gospel doors for the gospel being opened. Uh, so, I mean, I could just go on and on and on pulpit supply. When people need a break, we, we, we preach in each other's churches. When someone's financially in trouble, we come to the, to give, you know, whatever they need. If they need a building to meet in, in, in this most recent reality of COVID, you know, people need to capture their video. So some of us churches who have more technology have said, just use our facility, use our equipment, use our team. We'll serve you and help you get your sermons online. And so it's just been remarkable to see 
all this going on. We're a long way from where I hope it will be, but man, there's so much going on to celebrate. And the church is better because of it. Everyone's getting healthier. We're all caring for the larger reality of the health of the church, not just our own. And I think because of that, Jesus is uh, is showing up really well <laughs> to the non-believing person. They're starting to see, oh, okay, there is one church. Oh, yeah, we're a long way to go, like I said, but we're on the way. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Yeah, just hearing all the fruit and all the resource and and all the ways that stewardship's happening and, and gospel advance is happening as those two cities and I know others uh, partner together. Well, let's let's shift a little bit to talk about on ramps to partnership and maybe some barriers. So, what are we've heard some of them? I think anecdotally, as you guys have talked, but what have you guys seen in terms of on ramps that get new churches engaged in the work in a city? And maybe then even some barriers of like, hey, this is what will really derail this if you're not careful. Yeah, maybe maybe riff on that. Yeah, I, I would say f- for us, what we what we do on the front end uh, as far as on ramping, when we when we help to initiate a, um, a vision to reach every man, woman, and child in the city, churches enter into uh, you know kind of on ramp into kingdom partnership with one another through this shared conviction of reaching every person. So it, it's really a call to unity for the sake of mission, which what that does is it really attracts the the pastors that believe that the Great Commission is important and urgent, which you have to have both of those. So we will usually start with leaders in a in a city or a geography who have you know apostolic and evangelistic conviction conviction and function. Um, and those are the ones that can begin to call other pastors up to the vision. So, you know, we kind of use this phrase core before more. If you get the right leaders of influence that have a city reaching vision, they'll be the conveners for the larger church. You know, once we kind of work with them through a process to, to get them to a place where they're executing strategy around four priorities of mobilization, mobilizing all of God's people as missionaries, transformation, uh, really helping the church to cultivate a culture of disciple making, collaboration, doing it together and multiplication, um, you know, multiplying disciples, leaders in new churches. There are then many ways to begin to on-ramp churches through some of the things that that, um, Jeff has mentioned. There's all kinds of initiatives that begin to percolate in different parts of the city that provide just a a plethora of on-ramps, you know, whether it's prayer initiatives or events or church planting, many things like that. So we usually start on the front end with cultivating a a kingdom partnership with a a smaller group of influential leaders and build it out from there in a city. No, that's helpful. Yeah. What have you seen, Jeff, in terms of uh, on-ramps? Yeah. I want to reiterate what, what Will said there first though, in terms of like, if you can get a core group of leaders who have the bigger vision in mind, then when we think about the on-ramps, they're thinking about those on-ramps going somewhere versus ending. Um, so like there's lots of things where it's like, hey, let's unify around prayer. Or let's unify around caring for schools, whatever. But the problem with that is if it doesn't have the bigger vision, then it feels like they accomplished it when they did it instead of it was an on-ramp to it. And so that's really important that you have some people in some ways who are architecting and protecting the bigger vision so it doesn't get uh, lost in the, the the parts or the on-ramps towards that vision. So with that said, um, I'm finding 
probably five key on ramps that I think you could start. You could start at any one of them as long as you again you have that bigger vision of where it's going. Uh, prayer, as Will mentioned, I think is one of the key ones. Whether that's twenty four seven prayer initiatives or key prayer summits or you know, we, we've had several times we'll bring the, all the churches together as much as we can and have a night of prayer for the city. So you've got that. I think you've got uh, church planning initiatives, which you've heard about in B- Buffalo, New York, happening there, and that's happening in other places. I think you've got everyday training for collaborative uh, training of our disciples or our leaders, like I described as happening in Seattle. You see this in Phoenix with Surge. The thing that united them was, hey, we're already going to train our people. Why don't we do it together? And that led to churches, more and more churches coming to the table, which has now led to a much more unified church movement in Phoenix, in greater Phoenix. Um, and then then I think you've got the common good. You know, let's, let's uh, unite around caring for the poor. Let's unite around entering into schools and loving them well. With COVID right now, we have a great opportunity to see the church united to care for these very real needs that are all around us, but to not do it as your church so you get the credit, but to do it as the church so Jesus gets the credit. And then I think the fifth one is is leadership health. Uh, and, and we're all seeing across the country around uh, and, and North America, significant uh, leadership failure due to sin, arrogance, bullying, pride, narcissism, codependency, you name it. And then burnout because they're trying to do too much on their own and not doing it together. So, uh, and, and the reason why, like in my case, most church leaders don't last very long and usually move out of Seattle, <laughs> come here to plant and they're three years, they're gone is because they were isolated the entire time. And so, uh, mm-hmm. being able to say like, Hey, for the, your health and the healthier, your marriage and the healthier family, you need to be in community with people who are going to love you, befriend you, walk with you, care for you, make sure you get what you need along the way. I'm seeing that being one of the other on-ramps. So those are five that I see that any one of them can lead to the collaboration we're talking about, but they got to have a few people who already have that in mind so it doesn't get stuck at one of the on-ramps. Yeah. Yeah, that's really helpful. Yeah, to distinct, it's not a cul-de-sac that they come in and they do an event and leave and it's disconnected. It's always connected to the bigger vision of, hey, we're owning the losses of our city. We're reaching our city together. This is just one brick in the wall and we're going to keep doing it forever. And yeah, that's that's huge. Uh, what have you guys seen? Maybe we'll start with you, Will. Uh, what, is de- what derails, you know, partnership in the gospel and, and unity in the church? And of course, we never want to, we don't have to name names or name cities, but I'm sure if you guys are in 91 cities. You've seen some cities that had some real promise and yet it didn't happen maybe because somebody you know, derailed it or, or it lost, they lost sight of something along the way. How, how, how have you seen that go? Yeah, I, I think there's there's several barriers that we've seen um, over the years. I, I think I love how Jeff you know talked about the, the on-ramps and you know, making sure that the vision is not ending in a cul-de-sac. One of the things that we've seen from inception, you have to have a very clearly defined center. You know, that, that's why, you know, when we talk about gospel saturation, if that's the center, you'll have to do all of these other things. It gives it a North Star, so to speak, for everything by which you can orient uh, everything toward. So a lot of times in, in city movements, if you get competing centers, if, you know, there's leaders that think prayer need to be in the center or church planting or events or social justice, you want to have a clearly defined center. When you have competing centers, it can derail it. The other thing we've seen is jumping too quickly to action. Make sure to take the time to set the conviction of the why and let the why inform your what and how. Mm. So 
cities that have jumped too quickly to the what and the how without the conviction of the why, it, it'll eventually pastors will will view it as something they can opt out of. Hmm. Jeff mentioned this, and that we always go to this uh, when when we are in a city is that pastors have to take the time to own this vision at a personal level. You know, a vision to reach your city actually starts with us. Um, so if they're not owning it at a personal level, then rarely will they then take the time to align their leadership in their church or their mm-hmm. congregation for a city reaching vision. And sure. so you, you miss out there because really what we're, what Jeff and I are talking about is not an accessory or bolt on for the church. Mission is not an accessory. It's, it's the, the lens by which we view and align and orient everything. And so those have been a few that we have seen uh, in, in cities um, over the last eight to 10 years. Yeah. Well, that's really helpful. Gosh, I could, I already can think of examples and stories uh, Will where people were convening, but there were competing centers. <laughs> so it's like we're all aiming at different targets. We all have different values. We have different agendas, and of course, it didn't become a long-term coordinated effort. You know, we were never really unified to begin with. We were we were talking about unity while not being unified. <laughs> uh, so yeah, no, that's good. What about you, Jeff? Any any other barriers that you've seen derail partnership? Yeah, one of those that he said that I want to expand a little bit on, and that is. Uh, when like a leader of a church says, yes, I want to work together and partner with other churches, but the leadership of that church doesn't actually say yes to that. And so then you end up with this mm-hmm. kind of a network of, you know, lead pastors or a network of youth pastors or whatever it is, but you didn't never had the elder board or whatever it is that that church is led by. They never said we're in this. And then as a result, they didn't release time of their staff or their leadership to mm-hmm. give to it. And if they start to see that as competing against what could serve the local church because they never agreed to it together at a high le- at the highest level of leadership. So I've seen that that wow. be a failure significantly. I've also seen, and this comes back to leader health, I've seen here in this region, churches go all in, and this is before me, uh, I was in a different area at this time, but there, here on the east side of Seattle, churches were incredibly united to reach the area together. And then one of the most prominent leaders in the the network of this united united effort basically was given to sexual immorality and, uh, and had no accountability, had nobody in his life. Uh, as people tried to talk to him about it and say, hey, we're hearing rumors, is this true? He just basically did not allow others to speak in his life. And eventually it blew up, not just his church, but it blew up the very unity they had. And it hurt all the other churches because everyone's like, hey, you were working with him. What was going on? And so I think when you don't have a significant concern about leader health, then when you unify and one of you goes down, it affects everybody. And that's how it should be. When one suffers, we all suffer. So I think the the health of leaders in the unity of leaders is absolutely necessary. Otherwise, it's going to undermine it all later on when things don't go well. And so that's definitely happened here. And then I think the other thing mm-hmm. is that um, I've seen uh, larger churches act like they don't need uh, smaller churches. And I've seen smaller churches not want to admit that they need the larger church, uh, vice versa. It goes both ways. And that's re- it's kind of ar- the arrogance of our of our pride has gotten in the way. And then the last thing I'd say is the kind of ego logo thing. Will and I say this a lot, that in order to do this, you have to die to your ego and your logos uh, because Jesus is the ego and the kingdom of God is the logo. And so as soon as you start going like, wait a minute, I'm not going to get credit 
this isn't going to advance our particular brand or whatever it may be, that will undermine it without doubt. And so you have to regularly go, I don't need my name on it. I don't need my logo on it. I don't need us to get credit for it. But as soon as that starts to happen, what you, what I've seen is little pockets grow up and they almost become divisive. Like, well, we're going to do our thing because we don't want it to be called your thing. And, uh, that's where you start to get in trouble. And so I think even the more complex a region is in terms of its uh, geographical you know, divides, like in our case, the Puget Sound is divided by water. So every one of those unique geographical places can almost say, we are against you because we want to do our thing and call it our thing. And so that will undermine it as well. Yeah, no, that, that, that's really, really helpful. Well, as we close today, I'd love to talk about calls to action, uh, both ways people can partner with Christ together or can partner with Saturate, or maybe could even, if they're not connect, let's say they're, we don't have a, an active presence where they are internationally or elsewhere, what they could do to take meaningful next steps. Um, well, we can start with you. Yeah, tell us, tell us about Christ together, how people can get involved in a city where you are, or even just some principles for getting started if somebody's convicted even in this moment that there's a lot more work to be done to unify their church towards gospel saturation. Yeah, I, I think there's there's maybe two primary considerations. One, if this conversation is new to you and you're in a city where the church uh, is not unified or is not actively, e- even prayerfully exploring what would it look like to collaborate to reach our city together you know, you can go to ChristTogether.org. Uh, it's just a great resource. Um, we could have a conversation with you to help you there. So I think that's one approach if there's nothing happening. And then you've got, uh, and I love just the beauty of this podcast because, you know, Jeff and I and our relationship and Christ Together and Saturate, we're trying to model even at a high level with two organizations of, you know, what does Saturate the Sound need that we have and, and how can we give whatever we have that they need away? And so, there's a lot of cities where this is happening, like saturate the sound. And so, you know, if we get people inquiring about Seattle, we say, Hey, you need to talk to the leadership of saturate the sound. They're already going at it. So there's different ways to get connected. The reality is, um, as, as both of you have mentioned, I, I believe COVID-19 like no other time has really exposed the reality of how much we need one another. Hmm. And it's a beautiful picture of what it looks like for the kingdom to be advanced when nobody cares who gets the credit other than Jesus. And um, that's what excites me about Saturate and Saturate the Sound and and your leadership and, and us working together to see this advanced in cities. Yeah, well, that's good. Thanks, Will. Yeah, Jeff, what about you? What are some next actions you would you would encourage folks to consider as they think through maybe taking taking a meaningful uh, you know shift into more unity with other churches in their city? Well, yeah, I, I, I want to shout out to Christ Together because I know even here, and we'll mention this, but I want to be more even overt about it. The, the reason why we have Saturate the Sound is because one of the leaders of Christ Together came to our city and called the pastors to a John 17 vision and called them to repent in any way which they're not wanting to step into what Jesus prayed for. And as a result, it stirred up the churches and the leaders to want to do something. And I just happened to be one of the guys that they kind of tapped on the shoulder and said, hey, would you would you at least start to give some direction and leadership to pulling them together and, and giving it a, a bit of a vision that we can move toward? And so we wouldn't have it if it weren't for them 
in a sense, prophetically calling the city to it. So first of all, if you have nothing, I would, I would reach out to Christ together and even see if they could come and Will or somebody else could, could give that clarion call of what it looks like to have this happen in your city and invite the pastors to it. They can become, like Will said, they truly are convening uh, organization. They really can bring the churches together to have this conversation. So that's the first thing you may want to reach out and see if they can help you or just have them connect you to what's already going on in your city. The second thing I'd say, and this is something I'm learning in my own life, is to be honest about my limitations, to be uh, humble enough to admit my weakness and the things that I'm not good at, and then say, God, would you show me the other churches, church leaders, church members in my city who are good at that? And, And then sit at their feet, like humbly learn make yourself observably needy. <laughs> yeah, that's at the heart of the kingdom is blessed are the poor in spirit. And so I think as church leaders to be more poor in spirit and say like, there's things I don't have. And there's a reason why God built this to have one church in our city it's because he knew I would need you and he knew you would need me. And so here's how I need you. And I think that's a really great step towards even just the church down the street that guaranteed the churches in your area have something that you lack. And if you'll humble yourself and, and acknowledge that and then invite them into your world to help you, that's going to already start building the bridges anyway. Yeah, yeah, that's so good. We've probably all seen a young leader who's posturing, who's trying to convince you that he has it all figured out, you know, that he's got what it takes. And so he's he's telling you he has no need, right, because he wants to impress you as an older leader and really what he really needs, he needs a ton of stuff, right? And you can see it and you kind of grieve for him because you're like, bro, you're closing the door on all the things you actually need because you can't you can't embrace that kingdom principle you just mentioned of being poor in spirit. And if you could admit your need, so many people want to help you. You know, we're here. We want to we want to mentor you, we want to encourage you, we want to pray for you, we want to resource you, whatever we can do, you know, but you can't posture and pretend, you know, you're not gonna get your the help, you know. Uh, so yeah, that's that's so key. Thanks for for that, guys. Both of you, I really appreciate your model. And and if you don't, if you didn't catch it already, which is pretty obvious, both these guys have lived this and are living this. Uh, and there's so much lived credibility and practitioner sort of domain expertise uh, into this. And so I will just continue to learn from you guys as as you lead out in this and pray that many many more churches uh, catch the vision of what I believe the Spirit is doing to unify the churches. But uh, thank you guys uh, for being here. Uh, Saturate listeners, thanks for, for tuning in. Uh, we're thankful for you guys. And uh, we'll just continue to look for opportunities to partner towards gospel saturation together uh, in any opportunity that God gives us. So uh, that'll, that'll be it for today. And uh, we'll, we'll see you next time. Today's podcast was edited by Ben Fort. And our theme music is written and performed by the band Mopac. Saturate's hope is to see one missional community for every 1,000 people in every city as we see the glory of God fill every person, every place, and every church. We participate in this vision by curating resources, training, coaching, consulting, and many more ways. Find out more at saturatetheworld.com.